0: Support for the podcast comes from Canva. Presenting to a group of your colleagues can be nerve-wracking, so why not ease some of that anxiety with Canva? Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and that's it. You're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com designed for work.
1: Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down.
2: Hey, everybody, it's Daniel from the Vergecast. Big interview episode this week, keeping up our streak. McKenna Kelly and I talked to Senator Ed Markey. He's a Democrat from Massachusetts. He's got a new bill called the National Broadband for the Future Act of 2020. That's not a great name, but it's a really interesting bill. It's an expansion of the National Broadband Act. We talked a lot about expanding broadband right now. During the pandemic, there's a lot of focus on rural broadband, a lot of focus on kids needing access, needing computers to do their schoolwork. This bill would address that. We talked about the mechanics. Senator Markey wants to put $4 billion into the system to address broadband. We talked about net neutrality, how he sees that going. And we spent a lot of time talking about the connective tissue between the broadband plans Senator Markey worked on in the 90s and the situation today. A super interesting interview and a really candid interview. I just want to call this out. McKenna did a great job. Asking the questions, but usually when we talk to politicians, they're with their staff, they've got handlers. We just went on a Zoom call with Senator Markey at his house, uh, and he talked to us. So really candid, really direct, really interesting. Check it out, Senator Ed Markey, Democrat from Massachusetts, on the Vergecast. Senator Ed Markey, welcome to the Vergecast. No,
3: oh, thanks for having me on.
2: It's an amazing time to talk to everyone. Everyone's at home. How how are you handling? Being at home, quarantining, and then managing sort of the business of being a senator?
3: Uh, yeah, it's an adjustment. I mean, uh, Zoom is now going to be like Q tips or Oreos, uh, you know, <laughs> or Coke. It's just going to be a one word thing, and uh, you just have to adjust to it. And I don't think people are going to be fully moving back to their old life. It's, uh, you try it, you'll like it. And that's what's happening. I think people realize. That uh, fighting a traffic jam to go into a meeting downtown and then uh, finding a pocket spot, having the meeting and then going home and blowing a half a day when you could do the whole meeting just as well with the same people. And I think that's coming to be a realization for people who just didn't really want to give up the old world. But since this has forced them to, I think that uh, we're going to see a big change after we get through this uh, in terms of how people relate to their place of work. Uh, And I just think it's inevitable. And it was something, by the way, that, you know, we were talking about in the hearings in the 1990s when I was the chairman of the Telecommunications Committee and passing those three big bills back in the 1990s that moved us from narrowband to broadband. And we had all the hearings about telehealth and telework and all of that back in 1994, 95. But it's taken, in a way, the pandemic to now open people's eyes to the potential that these technologies provide for them uh, to deal with what they felt were unavoidably uh, pressure-packed in-person meetings with things that can now be accomplished with Zoom. So I'm adjusting to it. And uh, and now I'm busier than I've ever been because with Zoom, there's no being late. You know, it, it's gotta start, <laughs> it's gotta start right at 3.30. <laughs> we gotta have the meeting. We gotta have the, the call, we have everybody on. Whereas uh, in real life, you can kind of, oh, I think I'll go get my cup of coffee over here. I think I'll, you know, just finish this chat uh, with this other person in the outside room. But now, you know, it's it's uh, it's, it's something that I've I've adapted to. I had never used Zoom. Uh, But I think uh, hundreds of millions of other people have done the same thing.
4: Right. And like what you're talking about, a lot of these little moments, we're finding ourselves having, spending a lot of time on all these devices. But also, you've kind of become a meme. There was this photo that went around of you in these old Jordans um, outside playing basketball. Maybe you can tell me a little bit about those shoes.
3: Well, you know, when I was growing up, I really, really wanted to be a Boston Celtic. And and my mother, my mother used to say that she was going to donate my brain to Harvard Medical School as a completely unused human organ, and and it's because of the three hours, four hours a day I would spend down the park just playing basketball so I could make the team in high school, and just sit there on that bench and I just practiced and practiced. And practice. And if my mother was ever asked, where's Eddie, she would just say, down the park. You know, she thought that I should be studying calculus and trigonometry more fully than I was the angle, the geometric angle of a basketball shot off the side of the uh, of the uh, of the backboard. But that became my life, you know, playing basketball. Uh, and in the Congress, we have a free throw shooting contest every year. And I hit 47 <laughs> out of 50 free throws. <laughs> and I wanted to say, hey, Ma, Ma, it finally paid off, Ma, <laughs> uh, um, the free throw shooting contest in the House of Representatives. You know, but but I, I've got these I've got these uh, the shoes here, with and, it. Uh, yeah, he's holding up the
4: shoes.
3: And uh, there it is. I just took it off my foot because I just, that's what I wear now when I'm home doing these Zooms. And, uh, and they took a picture of me wearing... Uh, wearing these airs and, uh, and they've become like famous, you know, 400,000, 500,000 people, you know, have, uh, you know, have like uh, clicked in to see these, uh, these shoes. And we have all of my kind of young supporters, all doing variations off of the, the, the air revolutions that I have here. So, so it, yeah, it's taken on a life of its own, but to a certain extent, it's who I am. It's an extension of me. It's my identity. I never did master calculus. But free throw shooting, three-point shooting, <laughs> yeah, I did. I never had the vertical or the horizontal game to go with it. But if I was open with my shot, it was going to go in.
4: As all good memes should be, authentic, right?
3: Yeah, <laughs> oh, this has a life of its own. It's, it, I think there's, I think there's more young people every day who are just taking this and turning it into something that is – From my perspective, like a gift back to me, because that's how I feel about basketball. You know, when I was growing up, the Celtics won the title every single year. And so I just, you know, wanted to be one of them, more so than even being a center fielder on the Red Sox. And so to be given a little bit of recognition for that limited skill which I had, which was to shoot free throws, it kind of means the world to me. And I have a basketball court here in my backyard here. And uh, I actually was doing some a, a shooting contest with NS Cantor of the Celtics two weeks ago. And, <laughs> on, and on the first round, he was in Chicago shooting. I was here. And we each did it. You know, we took 10 shots apiece. First round, I hit nine out of 10. He hit eight out of 10. Second round, he hit eight out of 10. I hit seven out of 10. So we called it a draw. We won That's a good. game apiece. But for me, I mean, my goodness, I'm free throw shooting with a Boston Celtic while I'm talking about Erdogan in Turkey being a serial human rights abuser uh, and the need for us to be able to stand up as a country for the human rights of people inside of Turkey, which is where um, the uh, the family uh, uh, still lives uh, for him. And, And so it was just a great honor for me to be able to do that with Ennis Cantor, just a great citizen of the world.
2: So I feel like I could definitely spend the next 45 minutes talking about The Last Dance with you. I'm not going to do that. We're a tech site. We brought you here to talk about broadband. You are a meme, so that's important. You're connected to the internet through this uh, the, the image of you wearing the Jordans. You wrote the National Broadband Plan in 2008. You have a new updated approach to that called the National Broadband for the Future Act of 2020. Tell us what that is.
3: Uh, yeah, yeah, you're right. So back in back in 2009, I was able to include a mandate that the Federal Communications Commission had to land lay out a broadband plan for the United States of America, and to do it in every single sector: agriculture, transportation, industry, uh, energy, you name it, education, healthcare. What's the plan? How are we going to? Deploy and use broadband in the future. So, I think what and that plan is kind of the blueprint for what we have become in terms of the uh, broadband relationship to the American people. But this new broadband bill that I've introduced, the call for a new plan, is to look at it in the um, in the context of the coronavirus, in the context of how. We're seeing a telescoping of the time frame in which it's going to take for us to move uh, more rapidly to this uh, new era. Where the gaps are, we know that 42 million Americans just don't have access to real broadband. Uh, We know that 12 million kids in America right now don't have access, so there's a big homework gap. Uh, which is opening up between those 12 million kids and the kids who do have uh, broadband at home. And uh, we don't want there to be an education gap and as a result, an opportunity gap, uh, which opens up in America for the next generation because of this lack of access. We actually don't know how long uh, it's going to take uh, for us to fully come out of this coronavirus uh, crisis that we're in, and it could have a, a profound effect upon kids more than anyone else in the long run, because of how it's going to be impacting their education. So it's in every area again, but let's take a relook at all these things in light of what we're now experiencing, what's likely to unfold, and, uh, and then put in place the policies that help us to best advance a broadband agenda for everyone in our country.
2: So uh, the context in 2008 was obviously the, the Great Recession. For a long time, I thought that was going to be one of the formative moments In my life, that obviously, the scale of that curve has changed with the pandemic. But coming out of the Great Recession, we wrote some big plans. How are we going to change things for the future? We're obviously at a big inflection point again now. What did you learn from that process in 08 that you're bringing to this moment?
3: Well, I think it is that people still don't think as much about the broadband capacity in our country, how integral it is, how transformed our economy is, our lives are. Um, The coronavirus is really making it clear to everyone the extent to which that has happened. Back in 2008 and 2009, what I was trying to do uh, was to uh, lay out where all of this was then and where it could go if we put in place policies, which encouraged uh, technological deployment in uh, each and every one of the sectors of the American economy. Uh, Today, I see it almost as um, the tipping point where we're fully into the broadband era now because of the coronavirus. And I don't think we're going back. Uh, I think that everything has changed. I think we did telehealth in the past, but I think we're really going to do telehealth in the future. I think we did remote learning in the past, but we're really going to be doing remote learning. Now, I think we had work at home in the past. We're really going to have work at home in the future. So let's do the study. Let's understand what has to happen so that everyone in our country can be a beneficiary of it. Uh, Because we're no longer going to be, you know, kind of moving incrementally. We've just made a wholesale leap. Everyone's adjusting to it. And now let's see what the implications are. There are, I, I was talking today to Harvard Harvard Pilgrim Health to the Tufts Health to Blue Cross Blue Shield, ninety-eight percent of their employees are still home, and that would have been unthinkable. But they're still doing all their work to make sure that these insurance companies are still providing, you know, services to people. So I think for them and for many people, there's going to be a complete reevaluation of what's going on. And I think if we are wise, we'll have a real plan. That the federal government can construct a way of thinking it through that the Federal Communications Commission takes the lead uh, and lays out a thoughtful way in which people can be thinking about these issues in the years ahead. And then what is the responsibility of the federal government to make sure that we're putting the assets out there? So that we don't leave behind the smallest businesses, or the poorest individual, or the or the person that's out in rural America, so that everyone is a part of this of this complete revolution, which is going to very very rapidly move to a completion. So
2: you brought up the FCC. That's the agency I think of when I think about broadband in, in terms of regulation, in terms of deployment, in terms of management. This particular FCC, Ajit Pai's FCC, they have very much favored a hands-off approach. I think he would even call it a hands-off approach, a light-touch regulatory approach. In practice, what that has meant is he only asked for voluntary commitments from the carriers. He has abdicated most of the agency's regulatory ability and oversight ability. And even things like broadband maps or data collection or transparency reports about network management are left at discretion of our ISPs. Is that something that we actively need to change or has he proved everybody right that that's how it should go?
3: Well, I think the proof is in the pudding as now we look at all the gaps that exist uh, in our society at the height of the coronavirus. So that's the debate that I had with him over net neutrality. You know, I, I introduced the first net neutrality bill 15 years ago, uh, essentially after the 1996 Telecommunications Act passed, where I was the principal Democratic author. You know, net neutrality was actually baked into the personality of the Internet. Right. Non-discrimination is the kind of another way of saying net neutrality. So if you're a young entrepreneur, you got a new idea, you're online, you don't have to pay homage to the broadband companies. Uh, If you're a smaller voice and you just want to get your point of view out there for democracy purposes, you can do so. So net neutrality is just a way of saying here are the rules, here are the regulations and here are the things that people can rely upon to make sure that the broadband carriers don't discriminate against you. And Ajit Pai, you know, obviously took those rules off the books uh, after the Obama administration had put them on the books at my urging, my strong urging. Uh, And so in that area uh, and in uh, other areas, yeah, the FCC takes this, quote, as you're saying, light touch (laughs) approach which is in many instances, no touch at all in terms of consumers or competitors to the broadband companies, uh, in terms of ensuring uh, that there is a, a full deployment of all of these technologies in a way uh, that benefits everyone in our society. You know, after, after we get through this pandemic and we look back, we're going to realize that broadband has become the equivalent of water or electricity for people. They have to have it. they can 't operate without it, and anyone who doesn't have it's going to be left behind or severely impeded in terms of their ability to fully participate. so from my perspective, yeah this this FCC must be replaced with a new FCC with a Biden FCC that more fully reflects the Obama FCC, Tom Wheeler as the chairman, uh, that was more activist on 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 privacy, more activist on Net neutrality, more activists, in ensuring that uh, there is full access for children and for adults to uh, to access to the internet.
2: So let me let me just push back on that a little bit. I think all of our listeners know that I'm extremely pro, pro net neutrality, but the pushback is: Hey, nothing went bad, nothing went wrong, right? The, we're all more dependent on the internet now. You still have free access to services. We don't see the tiered pricing. We don't really see that much paid prioritization. There is a lot of uh, we don't see throttling. There's a lot of bundling. Like AT and T is going to bundle its streaming service. All that's happening, but the really bad stuff didn't happen, and the ISPs are still spending money, and the core of the network has held up in America, even though there has been this surge of demand. Do you think that is like an appropriate counter argument? Does that hold water with
3: you? Well, I guess what I would say is that because it was in court for so long, that the ISPs were careful. They didn't want to give any evidence. <laughs> that they were doing anything wrong while I was in court, you know? And so, you know, and that's the position I would take if I were them. I wouldn't be doing anything that was bad. I'd be saying, look, no problem. Look, we're still deploying, you know, but again, they were still deploying at the same rate, you know, under the net neutrality regime of Wheeler as they are, you know, as they have ever been. So the evidence wasn't there that they were being harmed by it, but there was plenty of evidence in the past, that they were harming smaller companies uh, when we didn't have net neutrality as a formal rule on the books at the Federal Communications Commission in order to protect uh, uh, competitors and consumers. So we'll wait. We'll see here what happens going forward. But uh, I have full confidence in... The broadband company's inability to resist temptation uh, and to to, uh, revert to their previous uh, personality uh, that uh, was the reason why net neutrality was needed in the first place.
4: Right. I kind of want to track back to what we were talking about before, when it came to the homework gap. This is something I've done a lot of reporting on recently. And when I talk to school districts in even urban cities like San Antonio, there are kids with their parents driving to buses parked around the city every night to hook up their computers because sometimes they have Chromebooks. And if you have a Chromebook, you need to have an Internet connection to even use it most of the time. So you've you've been very. um supportive of the E-Rate program. And for our listeners at home, the E-Rate program is basically the FCC's primary program when it comes to connecting schools and students to the internet. Um, You have a plan that just came out recently, and I'm curious if you want to talk about that, that would bolster the E-Rate program with um, billions of dollars to kind of get kids and schools connected.
3: Yeah. So when we were doing those big telecommunications laws in the 1990s and I was the lead Democrat. Yeah, the cable companies wanted to get into telephone. Telephone companies wanted to get into cable. Long distance wanted to get into local phone and into cable. Everyone wanted to get into other people's business, but they didn't want anyone in their business. So what they wanted me to do and what I wanted to do was break down all the monopolies. Everybody can do everything. One big free-for-all. So the cable companies, telephone companies, you can provide video service, internet service, phone service, long distance. Everybody can do everything. So, and I knew that that was going to unleash a broadband revolution. It had to because everyone was going to have all these additional zeros and ones that they were going to be trying to send out through their systems. And so that's your opportunity to get something good. And so what I said to them was, I want a program called the E-rate or the education rate where every time someone's making a phone call, there's a little, little tax on it. And that just goes into a fund. And that fund then provides the funding so that in Roxbury or Harlem or South Central LA, those kids have access to the internet on their school desk. And the reason I knew that was that I had gone over to the BB Junior High High School, which is where my cousin Mary taught math. The math gene runs through the, fem- uh, the female side of my family. And she <laughs> taught math at the BB junior high. And she had me over there and she had a computer in her classroom. And there were like 25 kids who were all huddled around it while she was doing a program, a a, a problem. And at the end of it, I asked the kids, how many of you have a computer at home? And like five of the kids raised a hand. I was in Malden. I'm still in Malden right now. I'm still in the same uh, blue collar house that I grew up in. And five kids raised their hand. Well, I didn't have to worry about the kids from Newton or Brookline or Westchester or Larchmont. They were going to be taken care of. They already had a computer at home. And it was already building a huge advantage for those kids against uh, the kids who come from blue-collar and poorer communities. So when I was a kid, if you took your books home, my father was a milkman, you could compete against the school superintendent's son or daughter. You could do it. Just study hard. But increasingly, there's a technology gap, a digital divide, which is what we called it back then, a digital divide, and we have to close it. So that's what this program was intended to do, because I had learned from my cousin Mary, the math teacher in a junior high school, That kids who had always been as smart as the kids in the suburbs, as long as they studied hard, were now going to not be able to compete to get into the college of their choice, the job of their choice, because they wouldn't have the technological skill set. So that was kind of the origin of the E-rate. So I built it into a bill in 1994, and then that passed the House, but was killed in the Senate. But then we built it into the 1996 Telecommunications Act, and it's now spent $54 billion dollars. $54 $54 billion provide access for poor kids uh, to the Internet in their classroom. But now, as you're saying, kids are now home. And once again, you say, oh, my goodness, all these kids, 12 million of them, they don't have the same access as the kids out in the suburbs. So what I've done is I've introduced a bill that has every one of the Democrats with me. I have 45 Democrats on with me saying that we should add $4 billion to the program to provide the help for all these kids at home to make sure they get the Wi-Fi and other technologies they're gonna need so that they can keep up. I mean, they might be in situations at home where there's five kids and one one device and no broadband, right, and they all have to study, you know? And mom and dad, they also have to use the device. So how are we gonna deal with this? These kids are gonna wind up, you know, with real issues with regard to how they're gonna view their place in the world. If we don't make sure that that money is there to provide them full access. So that's what my bill will do. Uh, It's to deal with this issue. And I am I I look at the issue of of these kids right now. And we need to make sure that there's going to be mental health access provided, that we're going to be dealing with uh, all of the issues that could come up from being in isolation. But you don't want to compound it by having a homework gap. You know, these kids can be competitive, but with no place to go. And, uh, and some kid who's not as talented or as talented just sprints ahead and getting kind of the plaudits, for doing so well during the crisis, coming back like, you know, like there was nothing that was missed. And these other kids are going to come back uh, left behind. And we just can't allow that to happen. So that's what I've done, introducing that bill, organizing all of the Democrats with me. And we're going to fight hard to get that money into the next coronavirus package, because this is going to go on for a long time.
4: Right. And a similar similar measure has been introduced in the House. And even just earlier this week, Ajit Pai, the chairman, seemed on board for that kind of change in the law, because currently in the E-rate program, any money has to go towards schools and libraries and can't fund those children at home under these new circumstances that we all are. You know what I mean? We're all just trying to figure out how to do it now. It's a completely new world.
3: But again, I wish that he had been more generous in his interpretation of the law, and I urged him at the time to do so. The intent was to get kids access to a technology for their education. And, uh, and clearly, uh, the education in that classroom has now moved to the, uh, the dining room and the kitchen. And, uh, and I just felt that he should, in, with the FCC, interpreted it that way, and we would already be a long way towards solving this problem. Right. But that notwithstanding— our bill has four billion dollars in it. And we're going to fight very hard to make sure it gets <laughs> the to the me- kids who need it.
2: Tell me about the mechanics of that bill. You've got extra four billion dollars. Do you want to give that directly to parents and students? Do you want schools to issue Chromebooks? Do you want to give it to AT and T? And AT and T is going to cross her heart and hope to die. They're going to give access to people. How do you want that to work?
3: You know, well, obviously, I wish that AT and T and Comcast and others were doing all this for free, you know, during the crisis, making sure everyone gets hooked up, making sure everyone has access to it, you know. But ultimately, you know, it, it's an FCC program. Right now, we send the money back to the cities and towns. They get a lump sum of money and then they can use it, you know, in order to make sure that the needs in their unique community is. Is taken care of, so that'll be different in a small town of five thousand people than in a big city. Uh, But uh, I think you'd have, I think we'd have to use the same methodology, and then just make sure they get the funding. And now, for them, how do you use this in order to make sure the kids have the Chromebooks or the Wi-Fi or whatever else they might need in order to be able to take advantage of the program?
2: How does that play into something like the Universal Service Fund that the FCC also has? I th- we had uh, Commissioner Rosenworcel on the podcast a few weeks ago, you know, and she made the point: look, America was able to get electricity to every home. America was able to get landline telephones to every home. Somehow, we have left broadband behind, even though carriers promised us over and over again they were going to do it. It would be great if the E rate money could help kids get Chromebooks and Wi Fi, but if they don't physically have a connection, they're still in the gap, they're still driving to parking lots, they're still waiting outside of school buses. How do you solve that problem quickly? Because that, historically, is not a fast problem to solve.
3: Right. Well, I think, you know, when you go back and you see that the Federal Communications Commission was created after FDR took over, you know, and it was all part of how is everyone going to get telephone service in the United States, universal access. Uh, how do we make sure that, you know, we develop a national economy and that's universal access? Well, that was the 30s. And I think we're coming up to another FDR moment here in 2021 when Joe Biden is president. Uh, and, uh, and to a certain extent, we're talking again about a new broadband plan for the country. You know, where we're just being realistic about what we have to get done here to make sure that we're using the governmental resources that we have in a way that provides resources to those who need it the most. And, uh, and I think that we will be in that position because a lot of the people you know, who were there uh, back in the 90s when we were putting together our new telecommunications policy, are the same people who are advising Joe Biden right now, the very same people. And uh, so I'm very confident that we will have a kind of a, a big vision for what is possible in the future.
2: It feels like pinning uh, everything on the election is hopeful. It's great. I understand why you'd want to do that. But this is happening now. And one of the things I've seen is there is kind of a renewed bipartisan emphasis on the problem, right? So Senator Wicker is saying, okay, we need to actually think about broadband deployment. He is a Republican from Mississippi. He is not usually one for uh, the government, to provide services in this way. There does seem to be a little bit more bipartisan energy around things like rural broadband, the homework app. Is this something get can get done before an election and a huge shift in power?
3: Well, again, um, I'm hopeful that we can do that. I'm hopeful. Uh, I think that these problems are going to be even more exacerbated in red states, which tend to be more rural. I think that they're going to be the ones that really see an impact uh, in terms of the lack of accessibility, uh, and again, it was bipartisan back in nineteen ninety six when we passed it for the first time and I think the same thing has to be uh, true here that uh, we 're going to need red state senators uh, who realize the necessity of of uh, having this technology deployed and uh, and in fact it's it 's a funny little story. Uh, I, I did the 1992 law, which created the 18-inch satellite dish. Not one. We didn't have 18-inch satellite dishes before the 1992 <laughs> law. So, so 35 million people now have the 18-inch satellite dish. But we had to give the satellite dish access to CNN and HBO, and those companies didn't want to do it. And the cable companies didn't want to provide access to the programming to 18-inch satellite dish. And I needed to do it so that everyone, no matter where they were in the more rural parts of the country, or in densely populated cities where, you know, people, you know, might not have um, access to affordable cable. So the interesting thing was George Bush, the first George Bush, he vetoed the bill. Well, who was my ally? Well, my— ally was Jack Danforth, Republican from Missouri, Orrin Hatch from Utah. Why? Well, because they have huge rural areas. And (laughs) President Bush wasn't understanding this problem. And so he vetoed it and they all voted to override his veto. And that's the only veto override of the four years of the first Bush administration. He vetoed 35 bills (laughs) <laughs> and 34 <laughs> vetoes were sustained by the Republicans and one was not because it was a technology issue. So there's there's a politics of technology aspect to this. And I think it's going to unfold even as you mentioned, Senator Wicker, my good friend from Mississippi, that they can see it. They can see the, the broadband disparities. They can see the lack of deployment. Uh, they're hearing it from their own mayors, from their own constituents. So I kind of think we're back to an 18-inch satellite dish issue where Once people see it and they say, I could have access to that, and the cable company's not going to be coming all the way out here one more mile with their wire to reach my house, and they never will, so only the 18-inch satellite dish solves my problem. Well, I think we're going to have the same thing for broadband, because I think that those rural areas are more in Republican than Democratic states, and it will give us a coalition where we can move forward successfully.
2: By the way, the eighteen-inch satellite dish you, you keep referencing—I feel like our audience might be a little younger. That's a satellite dish that Directv and Dish Network use to right. build their companies, right? That's, exactly. That's what
3: you're talking about. Which didn't really—it didn't exist, right? They—they—they. They, they, but they people could. just
2: want Directv. NFL Sunday Ticket is a very compelling political issue. My
3: the, friend. You're, you're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> and, uh, and if you want to get the NBA picture, uh, you to get the so so you're welcome. So the the uh, you know glad to do it. And again, you want to create competition so that these companies all say, oh, my goodness, if they're doing that and we don't do it, then we're going to lose customers. So, so I think that there's a rural component of this, the broadband issue, that's very powerful. And, uh, and if we talk about an infrastructure bill this year, the president's been promising an infrastructure bill for three and a half years. I'm on the infrastructure committee that um, we're going to build in a big, big piece, tens of billions of dollars for broadband deployment. Because that's stuff you can do. You can see where the need is. You know, put people to work. Uh, and I think that's something that we can uh, include on a, on a bipartisan basis.
0: Support for this podcast comes from Canva. They say Rome wasn't built in a day, but you know what you can get built in a day? Your creative deck. You can generate creative decks to use for all your important presentations with Canva. Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. You want a sales presentation for a tech company? Done. Create an employee onboarding plan? No problem. Just type it in and watch Canva work its magic. You'll have generated options in seconds. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver at work, so whatever you do at your job, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck.
1: grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
2: So let me actually, the satellite dish comparison actually brings up kind of a big philosophical way the United States has thought about broadband competition, right? Which is we have facilities based competition. That's the technical phrase where the DSL provider is going to run copper wires and the broadband provider is going to run a coax wire and they're going to compete at that level. Instead of the way that it works in Europe, where there's a shared fiber line and different service providers can use it. Okay, well, cable one running away, right? Nobody wants DSL. They all want cable broadband because it's faster. They all want fiber because it's faster. Right now, potentially what's coming up is 5G deployments. I have a lot of thoughts about this, but people argue, okay, 5G is going to take away the cable monopoly. And you'll see AT&T directly compete with the Comcast of the world. Do you see that playing out as a new front of competition or is it still necessary to do the wireline Internet competition regulation that we've been talking about for years now?
3: Well, I'm a technological agnostic. I have no idea. You know, back in 1996, people were saying, well, you know, with broadband, there's going to be so much information out there. You know, there won't even really be broadcast television by the year 2010. It's all going to be gone. That's what they were all in and saying about the future as they were predicting the future. So it would be okay, in other words, for ABC to buy NBC wouldn't make any difference in the long run because there's going to be so much information out there wouldn't make any difference. So what I always said was, why don't we wait and see if we still have ABC, CBS, NBC in 2010, (laughs) then we'll decide how to change the rules. Right. If it's necessary. But let's not anticipate changes that these prognosticators think are going to happen and change the rules before it happens, before it happens. So I'm a kind of a belt and suspenders kind of a guy in politics. 5G, great. Show us what you got. Show us what, <laughs> show us what you can do. Love to see it. <laughs> let me know when I got it in my hand. Let me know when I, you know, let me, let me see what, what additional stupendous benefits, you know, that we're going to have. But is it going to be, in other words, the difference between a black rotary phone and an iPhone? I don't know. You know, is it gonna be the difference between this flip phone that I have that was, you know, a nineteen ninety-six technology and this iPhone, you know, which is like a Apollo mission computer in your pocket? <laughs> or is it gonna be more like, oh, Apple's announced the most recent you know <laughs> iPhone and tries to market you to dump the one from just two years ago? I don't know the answer to that, and no one else does either. I hope it does. And if it does, we can change the rules. Do
2: you buy the idea that that it's a race to 5G? And if so, what happens if we come in second? ask everybody this question. I'm very curious for your answer.
3: Again, I'm just going to come back again saying, uh, yeah, we should be first. We should always be first. You know, America should always have a plan uh, and the plan should be to be first. And that's what the laws that I got the opportunity to co-author In the 1990s, all did, you know, we moved rapidly, you know, in 1993, in 1992, it was the 18 inch satellite just 1993, I was able to move over 200 megahertz of spectrum for the third, fourth, fifth, sixth and seventh cell phone license. That's what moved us from analog to digital. That's what moved us from 10 cents, from 50 cents a minute to 10 cents a minute. And then ultimately, all that spectrum is what Steve Jobs could look at. So I, I know that because we had a plan, and uh, and on top of that was the 1996 Telecom Act where we broke down all the monopolies and let everyone do what they wanted. So we had a dot-com bubble by the year 2000, but I would just call it kind of a broadband bubble, right? We'd get it. Everyone had it. Some companies lost. Pets.com didn't make it, you know? I'm oh, sorry <laughs> about Pets.com, right? We're sorry. There are a lot of losers, you know? Amazon wins and there were 500 other people in the same space they did not. That's – who cares, right, from the perspective of – Uh, The country, what you wanted was a broadband revolution. Well, we want a 5G revolution. We want a plan. We want to be first if we can be first. Okay, but it has to be something that's articulated at the highest levels of the federal government. Uh, Believe me, when I met with Al Gore and Bill Clinton in the White House in the 90s, they knew what they wanted to accomplish in terms of a broadband revolution. I'm not sure those conversations are going on in this Oval Office, I'm just not sure, as he's watching Fox News and, and, and uh, figuring out what the latest tweet is in terms of where, it, he, he's interestingly powerful because of the 96 Telecom Act. He can tweet, he can Facebook, you know, he can, you know can, he can have his own little narrow slice of Fox cable news, all of it is all possible because of that revolution. Not that he knows it, but, uh, but that's kind of the reality. <laughs> So I guess a long way around is saying, yeah, you know, it'd be good to be first, but at the same time, there's still a big, a big debate out there as to whether it's incremental, you know, or it's, you know, geometric in terms of the differences it's gonna make in our society.
4: So we've just spent all this time talking about how to get people online, but a lot of your work in the Senate over the past couple decades has been work on privacy too. Um, and what we do once we do get people online. So just last week, you voted no on the um, Patriot Act FISA reauthorization bill. Why did you cast that vote?
3: Well, amongst other things, it gives the federal government access to everyone's browsing history. I mean, How is that necessary without going to a judge and saying, that person over there is someone who we suspect of doing something. Can you give us an ability to crack in and get that information? Or we just did it on an emergency basis, and now we're coming to you, but we felt that it was urgent, much less kind of across the board, access to everyone's browsing history. Does that make any sense whatsoever? And so back in 1996, the last provision that got knocked out was something that I had built into that the House version of the bill, which was a privacy bill of rights for all Americans across all technology platforms. And because you could see we were going to go broadband. So let's build in the privacy up front. So that was the last thing that the Republicans in the Senate demanded be taken out. And what that bill pretty simply said was, number one, you have a right to knowledge that information is being gathered about you. Secondly, you have a right to notice that it's being reused for purposes other than that, which you had intended. And third, you have a right to say no. Knowledge, notice, no. And so that was kind of frightening to the big companies. So they got that knocked out last night, 11th hour, got knocked out. I was able in 1998 to create a children's privacy bill of rights for kids under, for 12 and under. I could get that done. Uh, and that's still the law. That's called the Child Online Privacy Protection Act. That's my law from 1998. And we need to upgrade that up to 16, in my opinion, because we can now see the invidious impact that it has upon 13, 14 or 15 year olds. But what's also happening here is that it's a replay of the debates that we used to have back in the mid 90s as to whether or not the FBI should have like unfettered backdoor access to everyone's computers, you know, and that everyone, everyone's computer that they purchase should automatically be kind of FBI ready. Well, we're just replaying that right That's now.
2: That's not a sticker anybody wants. I don't no, think.
3: I agree with you. Okay, so the privacy and security—it's like it's the government doing or is it a private sector company? But either way, we've got like American rights here, privacy rights. You know, we have to—we have to. It should be bipartisan. The libertarian right and the liberal left should be able to agree on this. You know, stay out of my life unless there's a reason, and the reason it should be that there's a court you know, obtain warrant to kind of gain access to this information. You just shouldn't be able to blast through and take all of our information. So, yeah, I voted no. I voted no. And, and again, there's a Dickensian quality to the Internet. It's the best of wires and the worst of wires simultaneously. <laughs> it can enable. It can ennoble. It can degrade. <laughs> it can debase. And so, obviously, the companies always go, look at this. Is this great? Look what we can provide to you. Sign up right now. You know, get this new service. And then when you say, "Well, how about some privacy?" Oh, you have no idea how hard that would be. Oh my God, you just don't know how complicated that would be. And the same thing is true for the government. Well, under the ostensible guise of protecting our liberties, they compromise them. You know, they put they put all of this uh, information. You know, in a situation right now uh, where. They can browse people's browsers and it's just not right. So I absolutely cast a very, very, very strong no on that bill.
2: So the Patriot Act happened in 2001 after 9 11. Another moment that I thought would be the defining, informative moment of my life, and certainly is one. But I remember the debate then was the Patriot Act is temporary. We are now into 2020. It just does not seem to be temporary. There is a similar debate happening around contact tracing, which we will need to do as a country in order to reopen safely. Apple and Google are building a contact tracing exposure notification facility into their operating systems. Actually, the first version just hit iOS yesterday as we're talking. There's some pushback. Hey, we actually need to collect more data from these phones to make it effective. And it seems like another inflection point in privacy where in order to reopen safely, we're going to need some data from phones in some fashion to do effective contact tracing. Do you think it's the same kind of moment as with the Patriot Act where we're going to make this concession now because it seems like an emergency and it might last forever?
3: Uh, Again, you have to build in the safeguards up front. A healthcare crisis is something we have to deal with, but the long term privacy concerns of all Americans is also very important. You know, I played a big role in constructing uh, HIPAA, uh, the health privacy laws for the country back in the 1990s. And again, that was all part of kind of the technological change which was making it possible uh, to have information about the health of all Americans aggregated in ways that never uh, was able to be aggregated before. Uh, and so, yeah, when I, was, when I was a boy, you'd go to see Dr. McDonald, Dr. McDonald's, uh, the nurse for Dr. McDonald would go over to the cabinet, unlock the cabinet, pull it out, go to uh, Marky, Eddie, pull out your file. And then the nurse would hand it over to Dr. McDonald and only Dr. McDonald and that nurse knew my healthcare, right? And so now everyone says, you know, it'd be great. And so we just had one big computer somewhere that knew everything that was in everybody's healthcare file that was always in these little you know, cabinets that doctors all across the country guarded with their life, right? And so this is another one of these moments. So I guess what I would say to you is we have to make sure that any information which is gathered in order to do the contact tracing has strong privacy and security protections built around it so that the information is not able to be compromised or, again, reused for purposes other than that which had been originally intended. Uh, and so in the name of fighting one crisis, another problem gets created, a big problem. And, uh, and it's kind of a hidden problem that people don't focus on immediately because, as you're saying, they focus on the, the issue of the day. Uh, but I've, I've put out kind of a 10-point a program for what should be in uh, a coronavirus-related uh, contact tracing program uh, so that we use these traditional principles of data minimization uh, to make sure uh, that we don't see a wholesale compromise of the healthcare privacy of all Americans. And that could very easily happen. We're just seeing it in the Pfizer debate with regard to the browsing information. So I don't think people should think for a second that it couldn't be easily easily made just a part of our culture uh, if we allow it to happen without any questions asked. Are you
2: satisfied with the proposal you've seen from Apple and Google around their system?
3: Uh, I think it's still evolving. I think they're trying to respond to criticism. And, uh, you know, so hopefully, you know, they will. I mean, uh, we're in contact with them out of my office and talking to them about our concerns. And uh, and hopefully we can reach kind of an agreement with regard to, you know, the the protections which should be put in place. So I'm still working towards that goal.
2: One of the things that's really interesting to me about it is— you know, Europe does have the GDPR, they have a much stronger privacy regime because of it, and you are seeing European governments, like the French government, push back against Apple and Google and say, we actually need more, which is a total reversal of the French government's attitude towards Google, historically. Do you see a similar sort of reversal happening here? We have not had a great privacy regime, and now we might suddenly have one because we're worried about these companies collecting data?
3: Well, again... The reason that there's a European privacy code is that, uh, in many ways, they have a different history than we have. They still have family members who lived when the Nazis occupied their country, where your identity was a big part of who who was punished, you know, who got arrested. And so they feel very strongly about it, and that's why the European privacy policy was so strong. And, um, California has adopted a version of that. And I don't think that California version is going away. Uh, I think that the more people learn about these technologies, that um, the more privacy they're going to want. And what usually then happens is then another liberal state says, we're going to pass a law. And then another liberal state says, we're going to pass a law. And then finally, the companies all come in and they say, we need a national law. We need to preempt preempt all of the privacy <laughs> laws in these individual states. And then you say to them, OK, what's the standard? Well, their first inclination is to point to like the weakest state and say that should be the law. And you go, no, 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 no. We're not preempting California in order to put in uh, a state's privacy protections, which are weaker. You have to say we're going to have the strongest protections, but for the sake of uniformity, they'll be in all 50 states because you're already doing business in Europe and the, the large companies in the United States. So if that's what you want, then come to... You know, come to us, we'll cut a deal with you. We'll preempt, but it'll be up here with a very, very high standard that people can rely upon. And, uh, and I think they're still kind, kind of working that through. They'd like to see if maybe there's some way that they might make it, you know, a weaker standard. But if they can't do it with Donald Trump as president and with Mitch McConnell as a majority leader in the Senate, then it's not going to happen because people will just revolt if you take away their privacy protections.
4: Right. Over the last couple of weeks, though, we've seen a lot of Republicans authoring op-eds, lamenting the fact that some Democrats are asking for specific concessions in a national privacy law. They want to have that preemption clause in there. And for our listeners, that's getting rid of all those what could be weaker or even stronger laws at the state level. but. They're also asking for a lot of the proposals from Democrats have had to do with a private right of action. So if you could sue these companies if they do violate whatever privacy rights we decide people have in the future. Is it Democrats having a hard time coming to terms with like a private right of action or these things with Democrats and with Republicans or what's going on? Do we see like a national privacy law coming into place anytime soon?
3: Uh, Yeah, I think it's a larger issue, you know, for many of the companies that they just don't like the idea that their business model is based on the compromise about privacy. Mm -hmm. It's taking our information and selling it to advertisers. I mean, that's the business model. So the whole idea here is antithetical to them. And it goes back to them killing my privacy bill of rights in 1996. You know, that was so they could create this business model, you know, and now they're in the blue perfect form of that business model. So as Democrats, we're just going to be pushing them, you know, to make sure that we have, uh, from my perspective, opt in from my perspective, a super-duper privacy bill of rights for for kids up to 16, you know, uh, with a right to erase, with a right to say to the company, just erase all this stuff about my 13-year-old daughter. I don't know what she was thinking about. We don't want it to come up on her college application. We don't want it to come up when she's, you know, applying for a job sometime. Let's give immunity to these kids. Let's give kids the right to be young, the right to grow up, the right to make mistakes. So that's what Kind of we're saying across the board that, you know, we just need to be realistic about how pervasive, you know, this intrusion is. But again, last week's FISA vote was not hopeful to me because that was unnecessary. That was gratuitous. You know, we would go along with you saying we got a warrant. We want to go through that person's browsing account. You know, we think that person is a heinous individual who is has committed a crime or is potentially going to commit a crime. You know, that, that's fine. But uh, this wholesale compromise of people's privacy is just now increasingly a part of the culture. You know, Wired Magazine had that famous cover back in 1995. Privacy, get over it. You don't have any, (laughs) Right. And so that's kind of the motto of the federal government and the private sector. So getting a deal, coming back to your question, getting a deal on privacy, it's not going to be easy. Not going to be easy because, um, you know, it, it has to be strong enough You know, that uh, people get the protections which they're going to need.
2: As we talk to the CEOs of the big companies, the Zuckerbergs, we just talked to Sundar Pichai, one of the points that Mark Zuckerberg in particular makes a lot is at least this is an American company. And I need to be this big. Facebook needs to be this big. Google needs to be this big to export American values. And if you don't let us operate at this size and regulate us at this scale, what you will see is Chinese companies take over the global Internet. One of those companies, for example, is TikTok, which is enormously popular among teenagers in this country right now. They just hired the former head of Disney Streaming Service to be their new CEO. They're obviously bulking up here. Do you see that as, a, as an actual solid argument that we need to basically regulate the American internet giants into place to keep out sort of particularly Chinese interference with their apps and services, and they're going to collect data in totally different ways?
3: Well, if if I heard what you just said, you said his argument is we need... Facebook to be big so that we can export American values. And one of those values will be that we compromise your privacy on a minute to minute basis. So uh, I'm not sure that's an American value that we want to be exporting. I think that we want, you know, we want to be thinking more like the Europeans and the Californians and then win on who we are, on who we are. We have to have the strength of our own convictions that the American values are the best values. Uh, And you can't compromise to a lowest common denominator because you feel that there's some kind of marketplace disadvantage to you, you have to have just the confidence in your own ideas and your own ideals. And that's my hope for our internet industry, that they realize that that's really what makes us great. And the Chinese have a plan and we need our own plan, but it should be an American plan with American values, uh, ultimately that we will be able, you know, to um, convince the rest of the world that we are right. So that would be my answer. And I would say that it would be good if Facebook stepped up and just said, here's, here's what the Privacy Bill of Rights should be in America for everyone 16 and under. Just be the leader. Here's, here's the proposal. Here's what we want. You know, here's what the proposal should be for privacy for adults as well. You know, then, And I think to a certain extent that would then become something that was American born, bred and ultimately marketed to the rest of the world. So no, my answer is no. You know, we, we don't have to compromise who we are. We have to be more like us. In order to beat the Chinese, we have to be more like us. We have to stand up for what we believe in. We can already see that China wanted to be part of the WTO, but not part of the WHO. Well, there's a concomitant responsibility as trade and tourism increases. You know, if you're going to be a part of that, then you then have to notify the world right up front that there's a healthcare care crisis coming. They don't want that responsibility. I do have one
2: last question for you just to wrap things up. You're a sitting U.S. senator. There is an enormous conversation in this country about reopening, getting back to work, lighting up the economy again. What is your position on that, and what does the Senate need to do to to actually make that happen outside of sort of the Patrick approach that we're we're seeing right now?
3: It's not a question of when we open. There is no date. It's only data, not a date. It's not when we open. It's how we open. So you can't open without massive testing. You just can't, and we don't have it. You can't open without massive contact tracing. We don't have it. You can't open without massive amounts of personal protective equipment for everyone in every workplace that's effective. We don't have it. So I think we have to be very cautious. We have to follow the science. Uh, We don't want to have a boomerang effect where people move too fast in too many areas of our economy. And then we just wind up right back where we started because we had a lack of caution. So from my perspective, we can do it but uh, it's only if we put in place all of those protections which we know uh, are going to be necessary. And also then ultimately be realistic that until we find a treatment or a virus, and we hope it happens soon, you know that we're not gonna have a normal and that we're gonna have to be careful. Uh, and again, as I said to you, when Pilgrim Health and, and Tufts have 98% of their employees at home, that you can say, go back to work. But if people are looking at it objectively, they're not gonna go back unless they're sure that they're safe. And that's testing, contact tracing, and personal protective equipment. And it's still not there in sufficient quantities. That's when we will start to see the recovery.
2: Well, Senator Markey, thank you so much for the time. That was a great conversation. We'll have to have you back soon.
3: Thank you. Thanks for having me on. I loved it.
2: All right. My thanks to Senator Markey. Also, my thanks to McKenna Kelly. I think she did a great job with that. We'll be back on Friday with the chat show. We love hearing your feedback. Tweet at me. I'm at Reckless. Our streak of guests continues. We're really excited about it. Let me know who you want me to talk to, what you want me to dig into. I'm in the market to talk to somebody from the Electron project, the web browser project. If you know somebody, send them to me. Tweet at me. I'm at Reckless. Would love to to push that along. Otherwise, we'll talk to you soon.